0: Decade seen as the minor sibling of the Grand Tour triplets, in recent years La Vuelta a España has in many ways come of age, establishing perhaps the clearest, proudest identity of all of cycling's long-form showcases. Remote, previously undiscovered, often indigestible climbs, summit finishes plenty, and a breathless scramble for the last scraps of glory or redemption in many rider's seasons. These ingredients can make La Vuelta at least appear the sport's most modern, dynamic and self-assured three-week race. Happily for the purposes of this podcast, those adjectives can also be applied, so it seems, to another great expression of the Spanish land and culture, its wine industry. After our viticultural Giro d'Italia and Tour de France, we've again entrusted Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars with the task of plotting a wine tour parallel to the Vuelta route or Recorrido. The result being the six bottle cycling podcast selection now on sale at www.divinesellers.com. You'll find more details about how to order and the chosen wines in the show notes. Earlier in the week, Greg and I sat down to discuss how he arrived at that six bottle final lineup and also to ponder the delights of Spanish wine in general. We were joined, incidentally, by a Scotsman. Someone whose knowledge of all things blanco, tinto, and rosado mercifully exceeds Richard Moore's. Anyway, hope you'll think it's a nice listen. Well, hello again, Greg. We haven't spoken for a few weeks. A lot of, well, a lot of wine has flown under the bridge. Hopefully, since then, since the Tour de France, um, because I was off doing my, doing my TV work. And by all accounts, the uh, Divine Cellars um, Tour de France collection was a roaring success, Greg. But great to have you back for La Vuelta, and we have been joined. Um, by a special guest, Greg. Would you like to introduce him?
1: So I'd like to introduce you, a key member of our team, Angus McNabb. And even though his uh, name doesn't suggest that, he's our Spanish specialist, uh, having, having grown up and lived in Spain uh, and worked as a sommelier extensively here in London. Basically, you know, what Angus doesn't know about Spanish wine isn't worth knowing. <laughs> so
0: Well, hello, Angus, first of all, but we can't proceed without... Well, explaining a little bit about where that name comes from and how—how how does a someone with a, a a career as a sommelier and a specialist in wine—how um, does he have a name like
2: McNabb? So, um, my granddad was Scottish, so my grandmother was Irish as well. So, I, even though I um, I grew up in Spain, I inherited his kilt, uh, his thirst for whiskey, and uh, apparently a short temper. But I, I don't agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's funny because I was born in Tenerife and Tenerife and Scotland share exactly the same flag. So um, it's, a, it's a brilliant coincidence. Very
0: interesting. Well, chaps, um, you were entrusted with the, the task of curating our, our Vuelta selection this year. Greg, in the previous two Grand Tours, I've asked you straight away what you made of the route, the Giro and well, the tour from uh, Viticultural point of view. and um, But before before we talk about the, the route specifically, um, since we've got Angus as well, um, if we could just talk a little bit about, about Spanish wine. Uh, now for years I've sort of despaired when I've gone into shops in Great Britain and in the United Kingdom particularly at just how limited the range of Spanish wine has been, or certainly was for a long time. Spanish wine was really, well it equated to Rioja and that was pretty much it and you could typically you could see 10 different types of Rioja and pretty much nothing else from Spain. Um, How much are things moving in the right direction from the point of view of what's available in the UK and what are some of the most exciting developments in Spanish winemaking that are currently going on? Well
1: first up i mean, certainly in the 10 years I've been running Divine Cellars. There's been a massive I think revolution in the wines that, from Spain that are being sold in terms of we're not you know, yes rioja is still very strong yes you know it's still very much an icon that people recognize but going forward there's such an immense diversity that didn't exist when I started out divine sellers back in um, back in 2012 you know that we're being sort of confronted with not just a di- loads of different varietals across the length and breadth of Spain from younger, newer newer regions where you've got younger producers stepping up and taking taking the mantle. You've got guys who are also doing a bit of experimentation. So the likes of, um, you know, we're even seeing sort of some pet gnats and some natural wines coming out of Spain that are of exceptional quality. But I think as well what's happening is people's thirst for something different has led to us seeing more carver in the UK marketplace, the growth of Albarino over recent years has been absolutely phenomenal, where the UK are the second largest pur- purchasers of Albarino on the planet, um, and you're just getting a sort of phenomenal amount of um, diversity, people looking for something different. and But the great thing about Spain is the quality of the fruit coming out of there in terms of most of the vineyards are either organic or biodynamic, whether they're certified or not is a different argument. But... They're, they're producing exceptionally quality you know, white, reds, rosés and even sparkling wines for a realistic price point that means it's far more accessible than what other countries can offer. Uh, I mean, in terms of some of the things, I mean, Angus has obviously you know, seen a lot more than I have, but I think you're definitely getting a really bright energy that's coming out of Spain at a reasonable price point. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let Angus sort of speak more about that, but... Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that Spain is, is the most exciting uh, wine country in Europe, without, without a doubt. And um, out of all the wines that we're going to be looking at, La Vuelta, I think the oldest winery is about 30 years old. Uh, there's a few that's probably only about 10 years old. And I think there's a lot of young kids breaking the rules and doing their own thing. And I, you know, I can't stress how, how much it pays to look outside Rioja. And, and just try to explore uh, new wines, because there's so many wines, difficult to catch up with.
1: I mean, I mean, just to sort of extend on that, I mean, particularly, you just have to look at the amount of wines from Tenerife that we're seeing in the marketplace now. Um, whereas, you know, 12 years, 10, 12 years ago, you just didn't have that, that, that level of adventure uh, that people were willing to take from
0: the UK. Well, chaps, we've mentioned Rioja already and we're starting the Vuelta de Chile uh, in Burgos, which is kind of a strategic strategically positioned almost between uh, Ribera del Duero and Rioja. Um, and you, chaps, have decided to go with a, a white Rioja and you've, for the red, you've gone for Ribera del Duero. Um, Angus, maybe, two... The, the, Those people who aren't terribly familiar with all the different wine regions of Spain, they might have seen a Ribera del Duero, they might even know that it's a a similar part of Spain and it's broadly similar, might even know that it's the same grape variety. Um, Just give us a a bit of an idiot's guide to what you see as the main differences between Ribera and Rioja when we're talking about red. Huge difference. So uh, Tempranillo in Ribera del Duero is much smaller, thicker skin,
2: and therefore gives a wine that has a lot more tannin, a lot more power, and thus benefit a lot from uh, French oak. Um, to build up the tannin and the structure of the wine. There's also the temperature change between day and night in Ribera del Duero is, is quite brutal. You know, it goes from 35 degrees to 10 degrees in the middle of summer. So that slows down the maturation of the grapes. And in Rioja, it's a little bit more subtle. Rioja has a bigger sized grape with uh, less skin and thinner skin. So Riojas will generally be much lighter in color, higher in acid and lower in tannin. And generally speaking, Rioja Red benefits 99% of the time to be aged in American oak. It's a very good marriage, uh, while it doesn't so much with French oak. French oak hardens the grape. So, you know, it's a little little bit like comparing uh, Burgundy to Bordeaux, right? So, Burgundy being lighter in color, high acid, Bordeaux being darker in color, high in tannins.
0: Well, Chaps, for our first wine, then we've got Ribera de Duero uh, for stage two. Bodegas Félix Callejo. Um, tell me a bit about this one. Why did you go for this one, guys? So
2: this is a very new bodega started in, uh, in, in the 90s. The guys worked at you know some top-end top wineries like Petrus and Arajo in California. Um, uh, it's a really interesting uh, style of Ribera del Duero. It's a little bit of oak, but it's not over oak. It's biodynamic and it has this amazing concentration of black fruits and flowers. That uh, it's stunning, you know, great value for money. And I think, I think it really represents what Rivera is. You know, a lot of concentration. It's very velvety. Um, great principles in the winery uh,
1: with the biodynamic um, style of of wine making and, and and vine growing. I think when we were doing the initial review at the time, we had a, a benchmark tasting with I think it was twelve different Riveros, and this was this was one that. Um, well, we didn't have in that tasting, but knowing the wine implicitly, we felt it—it it was a far more enjoyable wine than many of the ones we were actually tasting, and at a far kinder price point as well. Actually, that you know offers offers our customers a lot more value. So, and uh, proximity to the root was another thing. We wanted something sort of you know close as close to the root as possible, and we we did sort of to and fro on this wine a fair bit actually, but but it is a cracking bottle of wine nonetheless. I mean, it's definitely definitely worthwhile.
0: And, Angus, you talked about the well, the new sort of wave of of Spanish winemakers and, and how dynamic in general the wine industry is in Spain. That's kind of, it's kind of in contrast to a lot of people's image of, you know, when they think of wine, particularly in places like France and Spain, they think of these ancient, you know, traditions and ancient rules in some cases. I was actually, I was really shocked to discover that, uh, Ribera del Duero has only been uh, was only had a D.O. classification since 1982 I mean its fame its international fame is actually very recent
2: Yeah I mean Spain has been uh, quite slow to catch up with many many things you know I think the politically you know the dictatorship played a, a big role on that you know it was a dictatorship for well over 40 years and that finished in 1976 so the Cabo D.O. was only established in 1970 so um, in terms of recognition and marketing. Spain has always lagged a little bit behind countries like France or, or Italy. I think the quality and the variety, it's in, in, ca- in some cases, is greater. Uh, but it's just uh, it's only ca- caught up in the last 10-15 sort of years. And I think that's, that's one of the main reasons. So, you know, the historic dates for uh, DOCs, I, I don't think they're incredibly important in, in, in this case. But yeah, I think it's, Spain has always had great products, uh, just really bad at marketing them.
0: And so I said you've gone for a red Ribera and a white Rioja. Um, so stage three, we're going back up with the first sort of mountain stage or medium mountain stage of the Vuelta, um, going over the Picon Blanco climb. And we're sort of skirting the Rioja region, and we have got a, a white Rioja that I'm quite excited about. Tell me about that.
2: Chance. So, yeah, the, the, the peloton is going to cycle the, what's known as uh, La, La Rioja Alta, which is the upper Rioja valley. So um, a place full of medieval uh, towns with beautiful, beautiful towns and beautiful vineyards. And, and this is a good example of a modern white Rioja. Um, Oscar has made his name, making mostly white Riojas. His first made them vintage, got him best white wine in Spain, his first release, with a wine called Alma de Tobia. And he's very, very good at um, blending, uh, blending grapes, blending different types of Auc, um And he makes very modern style wines in, in the fact that they're not the traditional oxi- oxidized or oxidative style white Rioja. They're fresh, the texture. This wine is a really interesting combination of two vintages, 18 and 19 and six different grape varieties, each adding a different layer of flavor to um, to the wine, including things like Tempranillo Blanco, which is a mutation of uh, Tempranillo loss, the color and the pigmentation. So it's a really kind of sort of savory wine that has a little bit of oak, a little bit of texture, a little bit of leaves. And I think it goes really, really well with a number of things. And,
0: and Angus, is that something that this winemaker does systematically—that he blends vintages, or is that um, you know because of the particular nature of these two vintages? Or
2: I think I think he wanted to um, he wanted to create something like there's a very famous wine in Spain called Vega Sicilia, uh, Vega Sicilia Unico, and that tends to be a, bl- a blend of two vintages. And it's a wine that releases into the market for 500 euros a bottle on release. So he wanted to make a multi-vintage wine that was accessible to everybody. So I think it's a little bit, Oscar has never told me, but I think it's a little bit uh, trying to play on, 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 on that sort of thing.
1: I think as well sort of for us in terms of the, you know, we wanted to introduce a white into the frame uh, just simply because of, I think the certainly British perception is that Rioja is always a red wine. Uh, and I think having something different, having that opportunity to change people's perception with, I think what is a, I, I mean, we definitely cross sell this to a lot of our Burgundy customers actually, this particular style of Rioja, uh, you know, they want something as a fairly full bodied white wine, but still want something that has a little bit of freshness and and depth to it, which Oscar certainly doesn't struggle with at all, you know, he's, his white wines, are well, he I really rate his reds as well, but the reality is, I think, comparatively, this is where he really excels.
0: So, in a white Rioja, Chaps, what will you typically get someone who's never had a white Rioja before?
1: Well, I think, I think sort of like, there's certainly two different styles. There's the fresh and lean style that uh, is, is generally recognisable for no other reason but a slightly kinder of price point. Uh, you know, generally hasn't it hasn't been barrel aged, so the, the actual production process is a lot cheaper. Um uh, but then sort of when you step into the area of sort of barrel aged riochas, you start really start to develop those tertiary flavours, though almost 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 textual creaminess. They're just a little bit full of flavour, you know, and depending on the blends, like some will have Malvasia, some will have um, sort of Tempranillo Blanco or Chardonnay, as Angus was saying. And it just gives the wine a considerable, considerable more depth, and and it makes it a more serious food wine uh, than the the fresher counterpart, um, which which is generally just a bit more, for lack of a better word, but a more a more easy drinking style. This is a little. This has far more complexity, and I think um, is a far more serious wine than the the lighter counterpart. I agree. You yeah, so. But yeah, and this this is a really, you know, again, the Tobia Blanco is a really good place to start, actually. So
0: Before we move on, Chats, I must ask Angus, because we start in Burgos. We're there for, well, we're staying there. Our hotel is in Burgos for four days, and Burgos is famous for a particular type of blood sausage called, called morcilla, which I probably won't be eating because I don't really like that kind of thing. It's made with blood. Um, what helped me out, Angus, is made with blood, rice, um, some kind of... Fat from a particular part of the pig and um, onion as well. I think. What should one drink with morteria?
2: I think you know because the, the the blood the blood protein cancels the tannin out. It's one of the things about being a song understanding. You know, protein of blood and full body red wines. How that sort of wipes out all the tannin. So robust robust wines. Um, you know, Boba will be great. But you know, some of the more structure. Uh, wines from Toro or from Rivera del Duero. I mean the Mortilla de Burgos is, is great. You should have some. You know, it's it, there's onion type, there's rice type, they're quite sweet in flavour. It's it's not your average morcilla.
0: Angus I have to tell you that three weeks of the vuelta every year pushes me, has has prompted me to become a vegan for the rest of the year when I'm not a <laughs> when I'm not a bike racer. <laughs> because it is almost I, I used to think it was it was nigh on impossible to to avoid meat in france but i think spain it's in spain it's even more difficult
2: (laughs) i agree look there is another thing in burgos which is great and it's they do this uh, soft white cheese queso de burgos which is delicious it's a bit like a feta cheese but it's um uh, it's not grainy at all has a super silky texture it comes in in a little bit of brine um and it, it's delicious. So, you know, don't have thia, but the Queso de Burgos is exceptional as well.
0: Um, and, and speaking of animal products, and all thing, well, all things sort of carnivorous. Um, you mentioned Bobal. Our next wine is a Bobal from um, way over on the other. So we're sort of tacking east in the world to tacking southeast. From Requena, which is in the Valencian Community, isn't it? And um, but Bobal, this reminded me, Greg, of our conversation about Pecorino, the origin of that name, and and we talked about how, well, t- one theory is that the the bunches of the grapes look a little bit like a sheep's head, um, pecora being sheep in Italian, and I didn't realise Angus that the name of Bobal comes from the Latin for well, bovine or cow. Um, and again, because of the, because of the form of the of the bunch is quite distinctive on the vine.
2: That's correct. That's 100 percent correct. So uh, that's uh, that's the origin of, of of the name of the grape. And uh, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's this is one of the up and coming regions of uh, of Spain. Very high altitude uh, near Valencia. Funny enough, Bobala accounts. It's the second most widely red grape uh, variety planted in Spain. Um, mm-hmm and uh, so it's, it's a shame we don't see enough, we're starting to see more and 90% of it grows in Rackenna. Um It's a really interesting grape variety, it provides quite a lot of tannin and quite a lot of acidity, so you can make some really smart wines and wines that are really good for aging but certainly, you know, um, think think about it a little bit like maybe a Sangiovese from, from Italy so it's got this really high acid and this really robust tannins perhaps a little bit more power and more colour mm. yeah, It's
1: a good solid all round wine I think in terms of the region, it's sort of down down near Aquana, the major the vast majority of vineyards down there work organically, because there's there isn't there isn't a lot of disease pressure down there, and there's fantastic sunlight. There's certainly no uh, no dampness to sort of have to deal with mildew or anything like that, uh, and you know it's got a superb superb growing season really. So you know what what you see is again. Once, once you start getting to know Bobal, you see a phenomenal level of quality coming out of the region as a whole. You know, I think um, I I do think in terms of the regions we've got, in terms of generically, Bobal is one of those... Bobal and the region uh, this is being produced are probably one of the bright lights in Spain where I think we'll start to see more and more different expressions come out. And I think... It, you Because know, they can be adventurous down there because you've got such a consistent growing season.
0: And... Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Angus, but not too much of a sort of blowtorch as far as um, alcohol levels are concerned. As we start to get down to the to the southeast of Spain, I mean, when I think of red wines from that part of Spain and particularly going further south into Murcia, I think of... Um, the likes of humilla which you know you can easily find in the last few years we've found them on the Vuelta increasingly nudging 16% some of the reds and I don't think that's always the case with Bob it?
2: No so what people uh, don't know I'm, I'm sure that your listeners do but a lot of people don't know is that Spain is the second most mountainous country in Europe after Switzerland so you know these, these grapes are grown at 900 meters above sea level you know this is not Extremely high altitude for Spain, but it is for other countries like Italy or France. So the change in temperature here between day and night is quite a, uh, is quite substantial. And also, you know, we have got the Levante winds. You know, uh, the Levante winds from the Levante coast. So you got that, you know, cooling effect from from the sea as well. So I mean, you know, we're probably looking at fourteen and a half percent in here. Um, okay. Yeah, fourteen and a half percent for this wine, which is not dissimilar to what you find in, uh, in wines from uh, northern territories in Spain or, or northern territories in, in Italy. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
0: So that concludes. Well, that concludes week one, chaps. And, and I don't know whether this was deliberate. I don't know whether you felt the listeners needed to, to cool off a little bit. But we haven't got too much in week two. But I wanted to quiz you a little bit on that. Um, we've sort of snubbed Andaluthia. Um, a little bit um, probably because we, there's a bit of an embarrassment of riches in the other regions that the race is going to but talk to me about that Angus um, if, if one wanted to go off piste and one wanted to indulge a bit in week two in Andalucía um, what should they be looking for
2: so Andalucía um, La world does not really sort of pass very nearby but obviously Cadiz will be the place to go um, you know the region of, of Jerez or Sherry it's actually probably the most exciting region in Spain at the moment there's loads of fantastic still wines being made there so wines that have not been fortified you know people are really kind of sort of digging into um, you know um, single, single vineyards, different types of, t- types of soil and you have wines that are incredibly fresh with a lot of salinity um, there is also some really good reds as well um, Further from that, then really in Andalusia, what you find is sweet wines in the region of Málaga and Córdoba. You know, perhaps the most famous wine being Moscatel de Málaga, uh, which is a little bit like a Van Dam- Bandu Naturel from the South of France, so uh, Moscatel de Alexandria, or uh, the famous PX, PX Sherry, which is the kind of sort of um, molasses-looking wine that people usually put on top of ice cream in the uk but if you get a good one you can actually drink it don't, don't put it on top of ice cream just drink it um so those will be my
1: two go areas in in andalucia i think i think we were very tempted to sneak in a sherry or a, or a palomino table wine but i think when we looked at uh, with the producers we worked with in distance from the route it just the cards kind of fell that way really i mean we were we did try and shoehorn a palomino in there actually from but it just it was still, I think, about 60, 70 seventy kilometres yeah, from the route. Yeah, even a bit more. Uh, sure, so. Yeah, and it was just, just didn't really work out, sadly. I mean, it's a bit like same for Carver as well. We would have wanted to put in a Carver, and we just couldn't shoehorn it in. Yeah.
0: And as we move north, we move into Extremadura. There's not much of anything there, but I think there is a little bit of um, interesting wine. But that will be for another year, I guess. And then we, well, we move into this mountain range that we became familiar with a couple of years ago at the Vuelta, the Sierra de Gredos. In fact, it's it's become quite famous and synonymous with the La Vuelta because the the last mountain stage is often um held or has been in in this um little known sierra which is just to the west of madrid and i didn't know about this regions this areas wine making tradition it's not so much a sleeping giant as a giant that's never really been awake um is it Angus, but they have been making wine there for a long time, but it's starting to gain a little bit of prominence, and that's where our next wine, the Cadalso comes from. So tell us about that a bit. So
2: yeah, Sierra de Gredos it's it's, it's quite quite a long Sierra. I think it's got probably the highest peak around Madrid, around two and a half thousand uh, meters high, and it takes it, it touches a little bit in Castilla de Leon, touches in uh, Extremadura, and also Madrid, Mentrida and um, it's always been used for bulk wines, you know, Garnacha, high high volume high alcohol wine uh, to be used as a filler uh, and a, a bunch of young guys about twenty years ago got together and started to um, to to pay attention to what they have and what they have is they have very high altitude vineyards, very old vines and and Garnetta. they can produce wines that don 't have anything to envy to things like uh, what red burgundy or or you know even sort of Nebbiolo from uh, from Piemonte very classy very classy wines with a lot of acidity. Um, crystal clear position, uh, just beautiful aromas, but at the same time a lot of complexity. So these guys are starting to vinify single parcels, you know, using wild yeast, old oak, just being really careful what they do, and um, it produces the best Garnacha in Spain and uh, for me some of the best reds in the world.
0: And you, Angus, described it to me as a, a bit of a passion project to to well be a winemaker there because it's not easy land, it's not an easy climate, not easy conditions to make wine
2: well oh, you got to be crazy to do wine there uh, <laughs> uh, i mean you know you got um, you got wild boars in through vineyards um, it's all bush vines so this is not uh, your ideal vineyard that's all trained and you got thousands of, of plants per hectare you know we're talking about maybe uh, 700 plants per hectare as opposed to ten thousand, right um, so you got wild boars you got rabbits um, you got fires which unfortunately the last couple of years had affected uh, cadalso and and, uh, and other places in the region. Um, and then sometimes extreme heat, you know, every three years they get an extreme heat wave. So it's, it's a labor of love. You know, if you want to make wine there, it's a labor of love because you it, really low yields. You don't know if you're going to get grapes or not, um,
1: but it's absolutely worth it. Yeah. I, think, I think as well, the other, the other fact is sort of Angus did touch on a bit the fact that they're old bush vines, they, they can't be machine harvested. So the so the process just by virtue of you have to have someone there um, picking the grapes, or you know, is, is far more labour intensive than a lot of other regions. And I think um, I think there's a lot to be said for the sort of the quality of wine that comes out because of that process. Um, you know, almost like the sorting table happens on the vine, where whoever's picking it isn't going to pick, isn't going to pick a bunch that looks like you know that's basically rotting or, or isn't going to yield enough juice. He'll pick the right fruit, so automatically you're getting a more selective harvest than what you would in other places.
0: Talking of passion projects, labors of love, chaps, we come to our fifth wine, the Oceán Verdejo. And we could actually have taken a, a rather large detour on stage four and arrived at this winery, but instead on our way back up Spain and we will be passing pretty close to the door. Um it's near Segovia and it would formally this winery would formally have come under the denominacion de Origen, the rules of the rueda. Um, winemaking region but I understand the winemakers they decided to opt out a few years ago shades of the the very prestigious wine wineries in Tuscany in the 70s that opted out of all the rules there and they decided to form their own category the super Tuscans which went on to become very famous and very expensive Um. anyway Angus the Oceán winery. Um, some, they've got some extremely old vines there, I read earlier, between 100 and 200 years old. Anyway, tell me a bit about their verdejo that we have included in our selection.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So, um, so uh, Bollegos Oceán uh, have a lot of very old plant material um, grown in sandy soils, and some on, on the Dior, of Rueda, which is a very recent DO. Again, talking about Rivera del Duero, it's, uh, it's one of the sort of newer DOs in Spain. But I think Berdejo has an incredible success in Spain, you know. And, um, up, up until the 80s, it used to be made oxidative and sometimes fortified, so it was never made into still wine. And it was thanks to a very famous producer and a French consultant, enologist that decided to make this very crisp style of, of wine, not dissimilar to Sauvignon Blanc. I think it shares a lot of um, characters with Sauvignon Blanc it's incredibly aromatic, it has very high acidity, perhaps it has a little bit more texture than Sauvignon Blanc and it's been a, a roaring success in Spain you know, now everybody, everybody in Spain asks for verdejo, they want a, a bottle of verdejo a glass of verdejo, and, and this unfortunately has led uh, producers in and around Rueda to be um, upping up the gills and you're not know, controlling the quality, so I think this is probably one of the reasons why uh, Bodega Socian left the DO. But going back to the, to the grape uh, and the style of the wine, you know, I think it's a, it's a fantastic white wine. This shows what New Wave Spain is about. It's about very clean whites, whites with a bit of texture like this one, you know, spend six months on the leaves. Wines are very gastronomic, but also can be enjoyed uh, by themselves very easily. Um, one of the things that I like about Verdejo is it has a very pronounced nose of bay leaf and fennel. Which I always find very enticing and very appetising, very good as an aperitif uh, as a food match. Yeah.
1: No, it's definitely a, a wine that sort of we it is a hand is a hand sell for us. People come in, and when they're possibly looking for a Sauvignon Blanc or you know we, we're a, or something with a bit of her more of a herbaceous finish, recommending this has given us a fair bit of a success actually. I mean, it is it is a surprise comparatively. It's so much better quality than a few other of the Roweda wines I've had, I've had in my drinking career, where you just simply, they're, they're just not as, they don't have the same level of depth as this. They don't have the same level of interest. Um, and I can see why these guys decided to sort of walk away from the Dio, because they're obviously doing something special and certainly certainly didn't want to be compared under the same umbrella, really.
0: I suppose, guys, um, this is a good example because, it, as I said, it doesn't come under an official denominación de origen of the sort of broadening horizons of the well, the market for Spanish wine and how willing people are to try something that's not Rioja or Cava or um, one of those names that they were previously familiar with. And and also it reflects the, the confidence that you guys, retailers, now have in, in offering something a bit different from Spain and broadening people's palates for Spanish wine. Well, we're very lucky
2: because we, we, we talk to our customers, you know, and we, we build uh, our customers from, from day one. It's the, the the joys and, and, and the the bonus of shopping with an independent wine merchant is that you go in and, and you build a relationship with the person that's in the shop and they get to know your palate and they get to trust you. And we are always happy to take a wine and even pay a premium for a wine that's outside a recognized Dior if we consider the quality is there, it's, it's as good or like in this case, um, you know, better than what you usually get from, from Reda and I think this is very a very big part of why Ocean left the Dior because in Spain it's, uh, people will go and sell have a, a Reda Blanco or a, or a Verdejo and they didn't want to be in that category because the wines are a little bit more expensive and a little bit better
0: and that chance brings us to our final wine. It's another white. It's an Albariño from the Rías Baixas in Galicia. These four little inlets in the Atlantic coast there, and one of Spain's most famous whites, most loved whites. Uh, tell us why, Angus.
2: So Albariño, it, it has is a class on its own. The fact that you know if treated carefully, it can make wines that are incredibly balanced and they're just so charming. Um, so interesting you know, in terms of aroma ar- aroma profile and, and palate profile and you know again you know a great variety 20 years ago was little known about you know historically Galicia has always been about blends, Albariño was vinified uh, as a single great variety only recently over the last sort of 15-20 years so this is again like a bit like Verdejo um, is a recent phenomenon um, I'll compare it more than Sauvignon so, you know, I'll compare it to Riesling with a little bit of Viognier because it can be very tropical with white peach and apricot but also have this beautiful lemongrass and lychee and lime leaf character and it's just, um, I mean your listeners when when they get a case and they'll have uh, L'Opende or yeah, and Campio they'll understand uh, why it's so
1: popular, it's such a good wine. I think as well having, I, I was lucky enough to take part in an Albarino t- tasting sponsored by the region recently and it was really interesting to see the diversity you know what i thought was generally a fresh you know fruit driven wine that you know that freshness was the key point of appeal but the level of diversity in that is still quite broad where you get some of them a little more textural almost a little bit more mushroomed uh, almost like a burgundy because they've been barrel aged or left on the on the lees whereas i think at the and we'll start to see that evolution in years to come i think whereas Obviously Albarino at the moment is known for being fresh and uplifting, uh, something people generally have with seafood or anything sort of by the barbecue. But I think what we'll see in years to come is that benchmark changing slightly where people will see something a little bit different that still is able to offer freshness but equally a bit of texture behind it. I I think regionality plays a a big part and there's five five sub-communes
2: in the Rias Baisas and Orozal is the most southern one by the coast and it's uh, surrounded by the coast, the Atlantic and then you have the the Miño on the left-hand side Uh, Tiny region, I think they only have 700 hectares Um, just in the scope of things, it's only 4,000 hectares of Albarino in Galicia so it's tiny Uh, but Orozal has this, really makes this really sort of nice texture slightly tropical general style of
1: white wines so i think I, I, I really like yeah and i think you'll see you see quite a strong difference with i suppose the the albarino a lot of people would normally associate with but in a good way i think I think you're, they're getting, you're getting a lot more for your money with something
0: like this. Uh, and Greg, you and I have spoken in the past about how knowledge of a place and memory of a place, can, you know, can really enhance your enjoyment of of a wine. But you know, this is such a, a, a wild and kind of evocative part of the world as well. You can almost feel when you're drinking one of these wines if you can sort of imagine the ocean spray, um, you know, hitting the cliffs on the coastline in Galicia, and then. Um, it, as I say, it really enhances the experience.
1: No, it's it, it, and it's something that sort of I I rarely drink Albarino away from seafood. <laughs> so usually you want you, yeah. you know that experience goes hand in hand. I mean whether it's um, whether it's oysters or whether it's sort of a, a, a great piece of fish, you know with a with a with a fruit based salsa or something like that. If they're great wines to have, just work perfectly well and balance that salinity. And the sea, the flavour of seafood generally, I, and it. Every time I think of an Albariño, I think of being by the coast, or even you know, it's also a great match for fish and chips, in my opinion. But you know, second to Carver, second to Carver.
0: No, I'm going to commit further heresy by saying I'm not really a huge seafood fan either. I'm um, saying so no morcia no seafood. i going to. I don't know what I'm going to be eating. Well, I do know what I'm going to be eating in Spain. Um, I have. Um, I have nightmares about cachopo. And we spend a lot of time in Asturias um, on the Vuelta España every year because of the mountains there. And always, every year, I have at least one cachopo, which is this, this huge, I think in English people call it, it's like a cordon bleu, isn't it? Um which is beaten it's ve is it is it veal, isn't it? It's beaten veal, battered veal with ham, wrapped in ham, wrapped in cheese, wrapped in breadcrumbs. It's actually very tasty. It's just I'm always slightly horrified by the size of the cachopos, which is it's kind of a it's seen as a bit of a badge of honor in Asturias, I think, um which restaurant or how big a, a restaurant's cachopo is. They take great pride in the size of their catch-up, don't they? Th- that's correct. They're very,
2: um, um they, they don't do things half-measure in the north of Spain. Um, oh. you'll see that in the Basque country as well as Asturias, you know, they go, go,
0: go big or go home. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, chaps, the message I've got loud and clear from you guys, particularly you, Angus, is that, you know, Spain is, um, well, it's a million miles from that image, as I said, we might have of the wine industry in general of, uh, of a a fairly creaky tradition imbued tradition sort of um, hamstrung industry and the, the the wine industry in spain is very dynamic as you said i think before we were recording today in a lot of cases it's it's uh, sons and daughters taking over family businesses and, and really trying to revolutionise what previous generations of their family have, have been doing for decades and centuries. And, um, yeah, my mouth is watering just thinking of what we're going to find out there as well as what our listeners are going to drink. They'll, cer- um,
1: they'll, cert- they'll certainly enjoy the case, that's for sure. You know, we've, I think we dispatched our first one on Friday um, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that... We'll be we'll be at the sort of tour de France or if not Giro level, I'm pretty sure.